Candy from Strangers by Mark Coggins is original, smart, and good to the last page, says best-selling author and executive producer of the hit TV series Bosch, Michael Connolly. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Chapter 21 Thrown Down I hoped that when Carolyn calmed down, she would explain matters to the nurse. But just in case she didn't, I found the stairs and snuck down them to avoid any unpleasant encounters with hospital security. When I got out of the building, I aimed the galaxy at the nearest gas station and filled the 1960-sized gas tank to the tune of $46.25. Then I went inside the mini-mart, and holding a hand over my missing teeth, bought my first pack of cigarettes in about three months, surprised to find that the price had gone up considerably. I tore open the pack with shaking fingers and chain-smoked three on the curb in front of the store before my jangled nerves settled down. As I stood there watching mothers in minivans work the pumps, it occurred to me that if I was ever to develop an economic theory, It would be that the price of a gallon of gas and the cost of a pack of cigarettes seek the same level. I went next to the restroom where I washed off the denture and put it back in my mouth. It went in fine, but I immediately noticed a very sharp edge with my tongue. I pulled the plate out again to examine it in the gritty yellow light and found that one of the wire clips that secured it in place had broken, creating a needle-like point. I shoved the plate back in my mouth vowing this time to go through the trauma of getting implants rather than putting up with a damn denture any longer. My last stop was the payphone, where I intended to call Ellen to let her know what I had found at the hospital. I guessed that the unitard Carolyn had been wearing the night she came home was intended to hide the tattoo. I assumed the hospital staff were aware of it, and while they thought it was a horrible desecration of a young woman's body, they didn't realize that it was a recent addition or that it was the cause of Carolyn's suicide attempt. Carolyn might even have told them to keep quiet about it. I dropped two quarters in the pay slot and dialed Ellen's number. It rang three times, and I heard her answer, Stockwell residence, in a hushed voice. I opened my mouth to speak, and then panicked. I suddenly realized this wasn't something I wanted to tell her over the phone. I slapped down the toggle on the receiver cradle and listened as my quarters fell into the coin box. I needed to talk to someone, if not to Ellen. I dialed Gretchen's number for memory. Since I refused to use the voicemail system at work, I sometimes called her after hours to ask her about messages I might have missed during the day. It was mainly an excuse to talk to her away from the office, and she knew it, but she played along with it anyway. This is a neighborhood video store, I said when she picked up. I'm calling because you turned in a personal tape by mistake. I loved you in the Catholic schoolgirl outfit but you really need to lose the dork in the urologist get-up. Nice try, August. Didn't fool you for a minute, huh? Nope, I always play the naughty nurse. You almost make me wish there was a real videotape, but I'm done with naughty nurses for the foreseeable future. I told her about my visit to see Carolyn. How awful, August. Did she say how she got the tattoo? No, 
I didn't get the chance to inquire. I winced as I inadvertently ran my tongue over the sharp point of the denture. I'm afraid it was something she asked to have done, perhaps not realizing how truly hideous it would turn out to be. Hmm, said Gretchen. It must take a long time to get a tattoo like that. I think she would have realized what she was getting and cut her losses before it was finished. Depends on whether she was conscious for all of it and which end of the tattoo they started with. The butterfly itself is very pretty. I thought again about the girl in the alley, and then I remembered the tattoo I'd seen on Monica Mappa's shoulder. August, said Gretchen, are you there? Yes, sorry, I was thinking. Gretchen laughed. I thought I smelled wood burning. Watch it. What are you going to do now? I need to tell Carolyn's mother about the tattoo. I just don't have the heart to do it tonight. I'm bushed, physically and emotionally. Then you probably won't want to play the... A Japanese sedan with loud glass packs and about 12 teenagers came bounding off the street and passed close to the phone booth. I didn't catch that last part, I said. What did you say? I said then you won't want to play the gig at Bruno's. Saul Hodges called late at the office. His bass player showed up drunk, had a few more drinks on the house, and promptly passed out. Saul's got two more shows at 10 and 12, and the owner is threatening to boot him unless he finds a sober bass. I thought about it. Playing with Hodge's band, Distant Opposition, was always a treat because of the caliber of the musicians. The request to join them on such short notice was a backhanded compliment. Hodges thought enough of me to let me jump in cold, but also knew I wasn't likely to have something already. I don't know, I said. It would be hard to make the logistics work. I'm down in Fremont. I'd have to get home and then drive across town to the mission and get to Bruno's. Forget about going home, said Gretchen, and there was a smile in her voice as she spoke. Hodges says you can use the other guy's bass. Sounds like it would be good for you, August. I think you should go for it. I didn't take much convincing. Okay, doll, you sold me. Would you call Hodges for me and let him know I'm coming? Will do. By the way, he said to bring a trumpeter along if you knew one. Dundee's not playing? That's what he said. Hodges said his lip wasn't healed from that bar fight of yours. I felt bad for Dundee, but I thought I knew someone who would fit the bill. Gretchen, one last favor. See if you can get hold of Vic Lane and have him tell his grandson to meet me at Bruno's. The kid's supposed to be good. All right, Augie, she said with cheerful resignation. Just promise me there won't be any more urologist jokes. I committed to banish them from my repertoire, with fingers crossed, and jumped into the galaxy. I play Coldman Hawkins' Desafinado full blast on the ride back to the city, letting the bossa nova beat transport me faster than the car could ever do. The gig at Bruno's turned out to be a success in every aspect. The owner was happy. I played well enough that Hodges let me take a couple of very creditable solos, and Reggie more than proved his chops. He and Cornelius Crawford, the band's outstanding alto sax player, absolutely caught fire on an up-tempo version of Tad Demeron's Good Bait during the encore. The last I saw of Reggie, who was having a drink at the bar with Hodges, I heard Hodges promise to put in a good word with another band leader who was looking for a trumpet, and the kid's face lit up like night baseball. As I went through the upholstered red leather door onto Mission Street, he shouted at my back, August, you're the bomb! The euphoria from the gig seemed to fade as soon as I got outside. Maybe I was jealous of Hodges' interest in the kid, or maybe I was depressed about the turn of events at the hospital. Probably it was some of both. 
I stood under the sign that trumpeted the supper club's name in large red 1950s-styles letters and fingered the pack of smokes in my pocket, resisting the urge to light up. The street was dark, and a palpable cottony fog hung in the air. The few lights visible glowed diffusely like the blotchy yellow stars in a Van Gogh painting. I crushed the package of cigarettes, threw them into an overflowing garbage can, and took a few meandering steps up Mission towards 21st Street, away from my car. I kidded myself that I was walking to clear my head before driving back to my apartment, but since Bruno's was only about three blocks from Monica Mappa's, I knew the real reason for my little gallivant was to check out her place. It was too late to have any reasonable expectation that she would be up, but if she was, I felt certain that she'd have more to tell me about Carolyn's misadventure than she admitted so far. The journey took all of ten minutes, and the only signs of life I passed on the way were a growling street sweeper with flashing lights that materialized out of the fog like an alien spacecraft, and the mounded blankets and flimsy cardboard screens of the homeless sleeping in doorways. I prowled around the side of her building that fronted 21st, and then turned a corner onto Folsom. My pulse moved a little quicker when I saw that the lights were on in the second floor apartment. I trudged up the mismatched treadboards on the staircase to the entryway and stopped short. It was very dark in the vestibule, but a piece of white tape glowed faintly on the door to the flat. It appeared to behold something small that protruded slightly from the pitted wood surface. I dug my fingernail under the edge of the tape and peeled it back. Stuck to the tape was a tiny metal bar or post of some kind, but in the bad light I couldn't make out exactly what it was. I ran my thumb over the metal and I felt a wet slickness. A flutter of dread ran through me. I bolted down the steps to the street lamp on the corner and holding my thumb to the light, saw a smudge of dark blood. The item on the tape proved to be a stud like the one I had seen in the pictures of Carolyn. It seemed to me that the blood on it could only mean one thing. It had been removed forcibly from someone's belly button and the someone was likely Monica. I rushed back up the steps to the vestibule and pounded on the door. It rattled in its frame, as it did the first time I came to the apartment, but there was no response from within. I aimed my foot at the place where the cheap deadbolt met the jam and gave a sharp kick. The door flew open and a foot-long splinter went sailing into the darkened entryway. I wasn't carrying my gun, but I paused to draw the knife on my ankle and then took the interior steps two at a time. Light stabbed out from a crack beneath the apartment door on the landing. I reached for the knob and twisted. It turned in my hand. I pushed the door open and watched as it prescribed a lazy arc across the entryway. It had just enough momentum to kiss the far wall and bounce back an inch or so. I looked across the wide open room and saw what I'd seen before. The camera, the fiery backdrop, the computer table, and the throne. The only thing different was the throne. It was occupied. Monica sat in a stiffly erect pose with her hands on the arms of the chair and her knees pressed together. She looked like a sculpture from an Egyptian tomb, if you ignored the fact she was naked. Her limbs appeared to be held in place by tape, and her head flopped under her chest like it was hinged. I moved slowly into the flat, alert for movement from the back, but thinking all the while that there was only me and Monica, and only I was breathing. When I came up to her, I could see that I had been right about the tape. It was a white surgical tape like I'd taken from the front door, and it was wrapped tight around her wrist to bind her to the chair, and around her ankles and knees to hold her legs together. 
I returned my knife to its harness and carefully cupped my hands underneath her chin to lift her head. I found more tape around her neck where it bound her to an ornate wooden baluster on the back of the chair. There were dark bruises on her throat that didn't seem to have anything to do with the tape, and I felt absolutely no trace of pulse. Her skin was cool to the touch, but I couldn't begin to judge how long she had been dead. I had been right about the source of the stud taped to the door. There was a jagged half-inch rip in the flesh above her belly button, but there seemed to be very little blood around the wound. I guessed that the stud had been yanked out after she died. In fact, it seemed as if everything from the stud to taping her to the throne was something the killer had done after she was dead, probably from strangulation. I let her head back down to her chest as gently as I could and stepped back, my hands trembling. Finding young women dead was getting to be a habit with me, and finding them in ritualistic poses with mutilations was a particularly nasty turn for the habit to take. I sat down in a chair in front of the computer table to get myself under control and figure out what to do next. I propped my elbows on my knees and held my head in my hands, staring down at my feet. My brain was a howling maelstrom of conflicting thoughts and impulses. I pushed back from the table, trying to get more space to think, and juggled the mouse attached to the computer in the process. A screensaver of crackling flames had been running on the monitor, and now it cleared to reveal Monica's portion of the Heaven and Hell website. But someone had been at work on the site. In place of the original picture of Monica, a photo of her in the chair as she appeared now had been inserted. Somehow her head had been propped upright, giving the image a ghastly, zombie-like appearance. Unreliable medium had been written in dark red letters underneath. There was nothing erotic or enticing about the page any longer. It truly looked like hell. The caption beneath the photograph sparked a vague suspicion. The instructors at the art school had all used the term medium to refer to the means of artistic expression, like photography or sculpture. I stood and squeezed behind the throne to examine the skin above Monica's shoulder blade. The butterfly tattoo I'd seen when she posed for Wesson in the art school studio was different. The skin in and around it was reddened, and the butterfly itself had faded. I had never seen the before and after of laser tattoo removal, but I had to believe that the after looked a whole lot like this. One of the impulses I'd had earlier was to ransack the apartment for clues to Monica's killer, and now I assumed Carolyn's tormentor. The alteration to the website and Monica's faded tattoo seemed to confirm the connection between the violence done to both women, but their discovery left me feeling even more shaken. I was getting in over my head with this, and didn't want to risk muddling things up more for the police. Monkeying with a computer, in particular, could well obliterate any chance of finding the killer's fingerprints on the keyboard and mouse. I crab-walked my way out from behind the throne, and went further back into the flat where the kitchen and bedroom were. Using a tea towel I found hanging on the refrigerator, I picked up the phone in the kitchen and dialed 911. I gave the woman who answered with the basso profundo voice the address and told her they could find the body of a dead woman if they hurried, or even if they didn't. She wanted me to stay on the line until the police arrived. I said I would wait on the stoop. I dropped the connection in the middle of her protest and walked back into the main room. Monica still hung in the chair by strips of cruel white tape, seemingly contemplating her tortured belly button. I walked to the place in front of her throne for the last time, and laid my hand softly on the crown of her head, as I remembered my parish priest did when he blessed children who were too young to take communion. 
bless you, Monica, I whispered. The interview room at the Mission Street Police Station was newer and nicer than the grimy old one at the police headquarters on Bryant. Detective Kittred's suit was nicer, too. I caught sight of the Briani label when he shucked off the coat to hang it on the hook by the door. I said, I heard the last mayor donated a bunch of his Briani's to Goodwill when he left office. Did you pick up a bargain, Kittredge? He yanked out a chair and sat down across from me at the tiny metal table. Bite me, Reardon. He's a 44 regular. I'm a 46 long. But you know his size. You must have checked. Kittredge shot his cuffs, annoyed. Gold links in the shape of little golf bags flashed under the humming fluorescent light. If anyone here has been shopping at Goodwill, it's you. Look at that piece of shit you have on. The lapels won't even lay flat because the seams are so puckered. I glanced down at my lapels. He was right. The seams were puckered. I'd never noticed it before. They were fine when I came in here, I said. It must have to do with the long-term effects of exposure to police station air. I've already given my statement twice. How much longer do you plan to keep me here? Kittredge nodded like he was hoping I'd ask that. You know, I was reading an interview with that new action movie star the other day. What's his name? The Mountain? Something like that. He used to be a professional wrestler. I frowned. No idea. Anyway, he said he looks for two things when he gets a script to review these days. Consistency and believability. I'm kind of like that guy. I'll be happy to let you go once I get a little consistency and believability out of you. I slumped back into my chair. I only got one version of the story to tell, Kittredge. I can't help it if you don't think it would make a good script for the mountain. Yeah, well tell me again when you left the supper club. I left around closing time, about 1.45. And you decided to go see this Monica map at 1.45 in the morning because because I found out that she had misrepresented some things about Carolyn Stockwell when I last interviewed her. For instance, she told me she didn't know where Carolyn had gone, but Carolyn indicated Monica knew all along where she was. Kittredge picked up the end of his silk tie and examined the abstract deco pattern of circles and squares printed on the fabric. That tells me why you went to talk to her, he said in a bored tone. It doesn't tell me why you picked 1.45 in the morning to do it. I went over there simply because it was convenient, and because I was concerned about what Carolyn had told me at the hospital, I wouldn't have even gone to the door if I hadn't seen the lights. He dropped the silk tie and his eyes came up to meet mine. She was quite a nice piece of Filipino pie. Are you sure you didn't go over there for a taste? Maybe she didn't want to make it with a loser in a goodwill suit and you ended up with her hands around her throat. I snorted. That's right. Then I taught myself the internet so I could update her website and did some voodoo with the forensics so it looked like she had died much earlier. I thought you said something about believability. Kittredge cocked his head, pretending to consider it. All right. Let's shift gears then. Let's, but pick one that goes forward. Kittredge ignored the jibe. You said you think what happened to both girls is linked. Why is that? It's obvious, isn't it? They were friends. They shared a website where they both solicited money and gifts from visitors. They were attending art school together, and they both had what appeared to be very similar butterfly tattoos. The only difference is Monica's was on her shoulder blade, and Carolyn's is in front. I think the butterfly was a sort of Trojan horse that the tattoo artist did first. 
After the girls agreed to it, he gained their confidence enough to trick or force them into having the other thing done. At least that's what happened with Carolyn. Monica got wise to him or decided she didn't like the butterfly and went to have it removed, and... And he killed her for it. I understand. And the business with the website and the unreliable medium is his way of expressing his outrage that she denied him a canvas for his work. Is that it? Yes. That's the only way it fits together. He shrugged, not agreeing, but not disagreeing either. What about the belly button stud on the door? What was that supposed to mean? I can't say for sure, but if I were you, I would be checking to identify the manufacturer. Because if you can't identify one and it turns out to be a custom piece, then I'd say the killer made it and gave it to Monica. He ripped it out because she betrayed him. Kittredge gave a deep sigh. At least you're getting better on the consistency front, if not the believability. But you're forgetting something, aren't you? You mean the girl I found in the alley? That's right. It was dark and I didn't see the tattoo very well, but it looked like the same sort of butterfly. And the thing that I thought was a pink band or ribbon. Could have been the tongue of a dragon. I brought the palms of my hands up to my temples and mashed them into my head, suddenly feeling a throb of pain behind my eyes. I could guess where this was going, and I didn't like it. Yes, the start of a dragon's tongue. Only the girl must have seen it and decided it wasn't what she signed up for, so she got killed too. Kittredge nodded. And there's something a little funny about that tongue. I researched it. Turns out most tattoo artists do an outline of the tattoo before they ink it in. This guy was filling in as he went, which is unusual. Maybe he was self-taught. He paused and then gave me one of his searching looks. Don't you think it's a little odd that you found the first girl and almost immediately got involved with the Stockwell and Mappa girls? I ran my own tongue over dry lips. Sure, but that doesn't mean I'm the killer. Apart from not knowing anything about the internet, I also lack any ability to draw and know nothing about tattoos, including whether you outline or fill in as you go. He surprised me by smiling. So that's your defense. Ignorance and no talent. That would probably stand up in court. But I'll give you a hand out of the hole. We identified the first girl. It took us a long time because she's in the U.S. on a visa, a student visa. She arrived at the beginning of the month and was going to start at the art school in the winter semester. And in case you don't remember, the art school is about three blocks from where you found her. I put my elbows on the table and levered myself forward in the chair. Had she been hanging out there before she started? No, not really. She was too busy seeing the sights and going out with American men, including some sailors she met during Fleet Week. Apparently, a lot of foreign students register simply to get the visa and take an extended vacation in the U.S., but she had been assigned an advisor and had had a few meetings with him. Kittredge stopped, but he seemed to have more to say. Well, I said, who is it? Even a no-talent like you should be able to figure that one out. I've already told you more than I should. I blinked at him. Wesson. That would tie a lot of things together. He's an artist, and he's the only one who had a connection to all three girls. But what about the tattoo angle? He waved his hand. I'm not having this conversation with you. Just be thankful we had other avenues to explore because you keep forgetting. He's not the only one with a connection. You have one too. You already used your thunder on that one. Besides, with Monica dead, Carolyn is bound to be more forthcoming. She can point you directly to the murderer. Kittred's face took on a rigidly neutral expression. That would be the ideal scenario. 
What's that supposed to mean? Kittredge got up and pushed his chair under the table. He put his hands on the back and leaned over it. It means just what I said. If we can get her to talk, that would be ideal. Let me ask you another question. Did you look at any other pages on the website? Sure. I looked at most of them when we found it. How about in the apartment last night? Or should I say, this morning? No. I didn't touch the computer at all. I didn't want to smudge any prints the killer might have left behind. Kittredge looked at me for a long moment and pushed off the chair without saying anything. He turned to take his jacket off the hook, shrugged it on, and then yanked the door open to the interview room. Cooler air from the hallway flowed in, making me realize for the first time how hot and stuffy had gotten in the room. There weren't any prints, said Kittredge stolidly. Whole place was wiped clean. You're free to go. I frowned at him. That's it? What were you getting at with the website? He jerked his chin in the direction of the door. You're free to go. I stood on weary legs and walked past him. I was halfway across the squad room, which was already filling with detectives from the morning shift, when I heard his voice behind me. Do yourself a favor, Reardon. Keep a cool head and steer clear of this from now on. I turned back to look at him. But mostly, he said, keep a cool head. You have been listening to Candy from Strangers, a book Mystery Scene magazine described as crackling and whip smart. Find it in ebook or trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. <laughs>